Since the beginning of the 1800s, educators and philosophers of education have pushed for practical education. That is, education that leads to children actually performing actions, performing tools, uh, learning tools, and performing with tools so they can be easily adapted into society as workers, as performers in companies. Of course, we know that today things are a bit different, but there are some powerful lessons to learn. This is Tolerant Origins, and welcome to the podcast. I am your host, Alexander Salas. By trade, I'm an instructional designer, and I work in training and development, or have been doing this so for the last 15 years. When we look at the origin of learning and development, and we actually do, let's say, Google the thing, we're going to find that most of what is referred to the history of learning and development, or when real learning and development starts, is often proclaimed to be out of World War II. So in other words, somewhere around 1940 to 1945, that's when the practice of learning and development truly begins with the focus of job classifications and the focus of enabling performance in the workplace. However, that posed the question to me. So what were people doing before that? How were enterprises like Ford, AT&T, and other companies how were they able to operate if they didn't know how to train people? So it took a little dive. I actually did some research. I went back and I was very pleased to find that educational philosophers, or in other words, educators at the time from foreign countries like Pestalozzi and John Frederick Herbart profess the need to teach in a specific way where application was a direct part of the learning process, meaning that you will do the actions that will help you not only cognitively, but also behaviorally adapt to the new behavior, adapt and acquire the new skill. Then when we fast forward, to the 1900s, at the turn of the century, vocational education took a front role at helping the United States really adapt to the quick changes of the Industrial Revolution. Machines were coming in, people, less people were needed, but more specialized people were needed to work the machines with the, the work of many other people. That's all great. That is fantastic. I think that's a rich history we all need to look at. However, there is one book that was published in 1919, and that book is named The Instructor, The Man, and the Job. And that book was written by Charles Rickerson Allen, or C.R. Allen for short. This book lays everything, and I mean everything, that learning and development is talking about today as best practices. This book provides details, complete details as to how people should be trained, who are the learners, who should be training the learners, and also how 
an organization should support the establishment of a training department with training directors. This is significant because this actually is the foundation of that critical movement that most learning and development histories out there make reference to out of World War II. So today we're taking a look at that book and some of the big lessons in that book. So you as a business owner or training and development enthusiast, or if you call yourself a learning and development or learning experience designer, can appreciate some of these practices and perhaps consider applying them in your current environment. Before I get started, I want to thank you for listening. And if you'd like to watch, please go to our Rumble channel, which is available in the links on the description. I also give you links to the references to the books, which are fantastic uh, in themselves and something that really, if you love the profession, you will really appreciate. Outside of that, please know that this effort is not sponsored by anyone but me. I am doing this individually. I am not a historiographer of any kind. <clears throat> I can even mention the thing, I guess, uh, or say it in one shot. <laughs> so I'm not a historiographer of any kind. However, I have a strong interest in history. I think it can teach us many lessons. And um, there are some thoughts that I will share here that you may or may not agree with. The whole thing is that we both learn and have some insights as to what this information can give us. Besides that, I would like to remind you that this podcast is taking place in 2022. It has been over a hundred years since this book was published. Some of the terms used in this book may seem like they are ignoring the existence of women or other genders, or also that is solely focused on men. However, this was the historical period at the time. And actually, if you stick around for the next episodes, I will have some information that will really enlighten you in the role of women in the workforce and training and development through this period, to this magnificent period. Okay, so we start. And we start with the events that led to the publishing of this book. Before we jump at the book, it's fair to give you this background. So we're talking about 1914 and the beginning of the First World War. And the United States does not get involved in World War I right away. Uh, President Woodrow Wilson then succeeds over in 1917 to engage in the war, and Congress declares war April 4th of 1917. What's the big deal? Well, the big deal is we got involved in the war. And if you think about it, the war started in 1914, and then in 1918, the involvement of the United States really sped up the victory. In less than a year, or in about a year or so, the war was over. The effort to support the troops with ships 
and creating shipyards was monumental. So our country was at war by our involvement in 1917. As we were involved in this, then there were some specific needs that we needed. There were not enough ships and we had a threat from Germany U-boats or Germany submarines at the time. The German submarines that were sinking our commercial ships. So merchant ships were being sunk and also we had the need for more military transport vessels. So that triggered the necessity to build a U.S. shipping board, a regulatory department that was led by none other than Charles Schwab. Not to be confused with Schwab as the financing and investments uh, company. Actually, Mr. Uh, Charles Schwab was a steel entrepreneur and steel executive of the major steel companies, uh, including Carnegie Steel, for example. The main thing is this organization then created something called the U.S. Emergency Fleet Corporation, a corporation that was created government agency, perhaps the use leaders of companies, training directors, executives. They use these executives, these business executives to come in and organize this huge endeavor. We're talking about shipyards that they started with 50 shipyards all around the country, all around the United States and some parts of South America and England. This is all available in the links for the books that I'm referring to. With that came the necessity to train people in very effective ways to be able to produce the results that this effort got. If we think about it, according to Mr. Schwab, it used to take nine to 18 months to build one steel ship. And by the end of the armistice or when the armistice was signed, in other words, the peace treaty, it would only take 90 to 120 days to build one steel ship. So that's a huge impact. That's a huge time reduction. So you want to know how they did it, huh? I wanted to know too. And that's what this book really should be sort of named as the Bible of training and development. If I don't want to go too far with uh, religious implications. So let's dive into it and let's see some of the great thoughts, insights, and practices that the man, the instructor, and the job, or the instructor, the man, and the job has left for us. So one thing to note that is uh, quite impactful is the preface of the book, which is written by the author, Charles Rickinson Island, Mr. Mr. Allen was a vocational educator and instructor at MIT, one of the first uh, known technical or manual schools, as they call them back in the day. And he was actually running a train-to-trainer program, or let's say a teacher program, instructor program at MIT. So when he gets involved, um, he writes the following here on this preface in the publishing of the book. This book is intended, therefore, to serve two purposes, to serve as a handbook to instructors in industrial plans and also to serve as an instruction, as instruction notes 
in instructor training courses. So it can't be any more clear to us as learning professionals today that this has something to do with what we did today. The materials presented here, he continues, has been developed out of notes originally used in instructor training courses and subsequently modified for the training of shipyard instructors in connection with the instructor training work of the Emergency Fleet Corporation under my direction in which over 1,000 instructors have been trained. The last thought that he gives us here is, it is hoped that this book may contribute to the development of efficient training in our vocational schools and in our industries. If it does, the purpose for which it was written will have been accomplished. The book then continues with an introduction from another gentleman who was also a vocational educator and a contributor or collaborator with Mr. Allen, and his name was uh, C.A. Prosser, P-R-O-S-S-E-R. And he praises, obviously, the magnificent work done by Mr. Allen, uh, Charles Rickinson Allen, and, um, you know, gives his impressions of what employers and foremen, so at that time, the position of foreman probably may exist today too, I guess, in construction, but foreman, the word for man means, you know, pertains to Specific, specifically the role of a supervisor today. We'll gain uh, Mr. Alex's exceedingly clear and thorough discussion, a conception of the need and possibilities of training the new workers of which most of them had never dreamed. So this is important because what was happening in this situation is the establishment of tons of new facilities. So you can correlate this to perhaps a, a an enterprise today expanding its reach to become a global um, sort of enterprise. And what we had to deal with is the lack of skills. So they were training, uh, one term that is used here in the book is green man. Green meaning you're green, you don't know, you don't know it, you're coming in from the street, you don't know the trade, you don't know anything here. This book, there's not enough time to tell you how uh, much this book goes into the whole setup for whether it is uh, ILT or whether obviously there's no mention of computer training. This is 1917, but how you set up uh, the training and you will be surprised that there are some key principles here that I find to be pretty aligned with anything that we learned after 1940s, the work of Robert Gagné, which again, there's no connection between Robert Gagné and C.R. Allen apparently doesn't seem to be, you know, it doesn't seem like uh, C.R. Allen is quoted in any of the work done by Gagné or any of the research done by Gagné. When I find about Robert Gagné is that the, his first paper is around the 1940s when he uh, gained his uh, doctorship, his PhD over at Brown University, what it seems like. So. In this situation, we're going to break down the juicy stuff, the stuff that perhaps you may want to care about in some interesting concepts. So here we go. Training in the plant is chapter one, and he is discussing here about the principles of training. One of the key highlights 
on the principles of training is uh, describing what will cost a lot of money for an employer and discuss also when we should do training. So if you think a bit, he's already applying needs analysis here, giving an idea, okay, when should you do training? So for that, the statement is as follows. In general, it may be said that a job is worth training for it presents these characteristics. One, anybody cannot learn to do the job. That is, in training, it is found that a certain level or certain natural qualifications count as quickness, neatness, a good eye, physical strength, weight, etc. So he's addressing here that there are some natural qualifications that we have. That's what we can call talent, right? But it doesn't mean you know how to do the job. So you have to be taught to do the job. You have to be instructed to do the job. The trade recognizes, and number two, he says, the trade recognizes jobs of different degrees of difficulty in the same line. As for example, in machine shop work or in making paper boxes, they are recognized grades of jobs. So if you look at the organization today of the federal government and train and positions, it mirrors this completely. Qualifications, specific job uh, levels, and it's the same as we look in private industry. There are instructional designers and there are senior instructional designers, right? There is, uh, number three is, there is a best way of doing the job. That is critical, that is so important. Because often today, you'll find that there's no clear instruction on what is the best way to do the job. You'll find also that today, it's kind of left out there where perhaps companies are not documenting their processes or the best workflow for the jobs that are being provided. Number four, it is recognized that an appreciable period of time is required for a learner, pay attention to this part because it's actually straight from the book, learner, the term learner is being used in 1917, to reach maximum efficiency. In other words, a man cannot do the job as well as the first time as he can after a period of practice. Here, again, we see the need for practice, the need for training, which will lead to learning. So, very important to kind of pay attention to those facts. I think um, it's a very interesting thing. It gives clear guidance here as to, you know, when you should be training people. And then we have the best situation, something that he mentions as well, which is if the training process has to be carried out somehow, we will have the best conditions if each man were trained to so that he could do his job the best possible way. Number two, each man were trained to do his job in the least time compatible with thorough training. And number three, experiences of each man during the training period have been such that he stayed through the training period, did not quit when only partly trained. So here we're also discussing the experience of those folks that are trainees learners. So if you think about it, learning experience design, not really a new thing. This is experience. We're concerned with the experience from the beginning because this uh, 
process here and what the, the mantra that we have in this book is giving us also systemic thought, right? So it's not only thinking about the job, the employee, the employer, but also all the surrounding pieces of that. So now let's talk about factors that increase cost for enterprises, for businesses. Listen to these things and think to yourself if this are still applicable to today's world, right? To companies today. Some factors in the overhead training cost. Among the important factors tending to increase the overhead training costs are number one, turning out second class men because no precautions were taken to see that the learners were trained only by first class men. One thing to mention here too is that it seems that the term man is used as a general uh, gathering of the full population because there were actually women working in these factories at this time. So it might be a, a sign of the times or indication of the times that the term was used generally to say the men or kind of like what some people often say guys and they mean guys and gals. So something to think about there. But primarily it focuses on the fact that you have to have people that know what they're doing, they have done their job to train others to reach that same level of proficiency. And that is super important because really there's not really a way to defend that. If you don't have the experience of doing the work, how can you teach anyone to become well adapted to perform in that job? You don't know what the job, you don't know how to do the job. So how will you do that? <laughs> so at that point, you can only teach concepts related to the job, but you can't really teach the skill of the job. Taking too little time, number two, taking too little time to train a man properly because it was nobody's business to follow him up and check him up to see what he that he was properly trained. That is systemic training right there. That is learning experience design. You know, we know that today people speak about learning experience design in two focuses. One is UX and the other one is not focusing just on one event. Well, when you do any type of training interaction or any training intervention, it should be a system that is involved, not just doing a class or some kind of course and doing that and then just letting it go. And, you know, sometimes people say, well, the excuse is, oh, but that's the manager's job. That's not my job. Well, it may be the manager's job, but doesn't mean that you can design the whole plan as to how things are going to be followed up. Following up on the effect, efficacy of the training, it is your job as a training and development professional. Number three, allowing to continue in the training after he is trained and knows or thinks that he can do as good a job as any other fellow, resulting in discontent and increased turnover. This is already addressing retention and is addressing uh, what some of the factors that will make people not want to stay or let's say uh, silent quitting, as they call it today, right? So, This means you, you don't need to train people that have been trained. If the person already has experience, perhaps what they need is just guidance, coaching, and information. Number four, putting improperly trained men onto regular production work because no training standards have been established. That is super powerful. That's another thing that is being affected today. What are the training standards? 
if we just talk about learning, then it's completely nebulous. It's completely general there. If you specify learning, great. You can use learning as that, being that it's learning and development and you're equipping people to do their job better. If you completely provide a definition of that, then sure, that works. But this is super important in that you don't want to put people that don't meet a standard of proficiency, a standard of performance doing their job because that's going to frustrate that person and it's also going to hurt the organization in the long run. Five, accepting for training men who are not fitted for that particular sort of work or continuing to train them after it has become evident that they are fitted for work in that particular line. You know, this could get a little touchy in a lot of areas, but it's the reality of things. We have a thought today that everyone can do any job, and that may be correct given time and given attention. But when we want to maximize the performance of an organization, perhaps some people need to do a different job than what they are set to do. And that will lead to better organization and better outcomes in a company. So these are some factors that will increase training cost. And if you're keeping someone in a job that they're not going to be good at, that can cost the company quite gravely. As uh, CR Island lists all these um, factors that increase training costs, he goes into deeper detail as to what that is. And then he's providing a summary of conditions for effective training. So what are the conditions for effective training? If a concern must train somehow in order to keep up the effectiveness of its force, and all concerns must, its problem is to secure maximum production and minimum overhead costs by bringing all of its force to a point where they can all do their different jobs in the best way. Since training, no matter how it's carried on, puts an overhead charge on the business, the problem is to train as well as possible, but to keep the training costs as low as possible and still train first-class men. This is largely a matter of meeting certain conditions among the most important, which are training the right people by some suitable method of selection. Conducting the breaking in process in such a way that the learner will stay through it and then remain with the concern. Establishing standards of good warmanship and training on those standards. So those are three basic principles and it starts pretty much with hiring. So when you're hiring and you're selecting folks, make sure you're hiring and selecting the right folks, meaning the capabilities they have, what is it that they can bring on on their interview, what are the skills and the trajectory, right? And then from there, uh, the breaking process, which is pretty much what your onboarding kind of leads to. And you want to do it in a way that people will feel welcome and they'll learn to stay and remain with the concern. So breaking process can be considered onboarding as well, not only onboarding as in the organizational onboarding, but onboarding of into the job of the profession, right? You don't want to grab somebody in and throw them in the floor and say, hey, good luck, have fun, or go to your office, start working, have fun. 
you want to uh, break them in, scaffold them into the situation. However, the key component there is that um, you want to establish standards of good workmanship and training on those standards. And that's something that is not often seen today or, let's say, clearly communicated, right? So methods of training is another very important thing that he broke down, and this has really called my attention. And uh, I didn't know that there was such knowledge at this time um, like that. So there are two methods that he breaks down that he recognizes at the time or which one is more effective or not. And to me, this is sort of the beginning of instructional design per se. So he talks about a method known as training by absorption. And training by absorption is pretty much what you see today in many restaurants and things like that. I'm not saying that, you know, restaurant companies are there are now still doing the same, but I see it quite often in restaurants and local breakfast, uh, let's say small uh, mom and pop shops and whatnot, where you start working there and you are basically, you start working. You don't go to training. Your training is actually through work. And it's uh, what is known today as sink or swim in many cases. In other words, you're gonna get in there and you're going to start doing the work. Maybe somebody's guiding you. Maybe there's a person, they pair you up with someone that is already, already has experience in the job, but that's a problem, right? Because you can end up with someone that doesn't really care about the job and that will affect completely that person. So he does mention that this job method is not, is not efficient, it's not the best uh, one to use. The second method he mentions is training by intention. And this thoroughly links up with the purpose of instructional design. Meaning we have a purpose. We have a set of instruction that we need to do. There's a job tasks and there are certain um, stacks that need to be completed, achieved, goals that need to be achieved, functions that need to be performed. So he mentions that training by intention differs from training by absorption in that there is some recognized plan for training the new man. So if somebody's expected to train them either as all of his job or as part of his job. And this is where we're calling now for the need of the training instructor or the training learning facilitator. So he closes by saying definite training departments whose sole responsibility is to train as described in this book in trade schools will illustrate training by intention carried to the extreme point of development. In all of these cases, somebody is paid to train the new personnel. So it is intended that he shall be trained, hence the name. And therefore, training by intention begins to what we know as training and development. Now, he goes into quick detail in the comparison of the two and uh, breaks all that down and also establishes how people need to um, go about it and, and, and do the and what's required to do training by intention. Now, one term that comes back and forth is putting it over. And that's sort of a, a way of communicating knowledge transfer. So putting it over means knowledge transferring. He mentions this as whenever a man has the job of putting over what he knows to somebody else, 
Whether he thinks so or not, he is an instructor. His job is to instruct or to use the common word, the more common word. He is a teacher and his job is to teach. Men who give shop instruction rarely think of themselves as teachers. They seldom realize that they have the same sort of a job as any other teacher, but such is the fact. So far as the teaching end of it goes, teaching Bill Jones how to set an index head on a universal miller, this are terms for a machine, teaching a new recruit how to handle a rifle, or in teaching Bill's son, Sammy Jones, how to solve an algebraic equation are all the same sort of jobs. So very interesting in the comparison there of training and the need for an instructor and the need for intentional training, meaning with a training plan. And all this obviously supported by instructional design. So why does this call for a specialized team uh, to train folks? He states that in a, in a paragraph that says, why the use of regular production force interferes with effective training. So if training interferes with production, the situation also works backwards. That means, and we see this at companies all the time where, you know, people don't have enough time to train. Well, if you have much time to train, that also impedes on production. And you have people that are in training classes that perhaps are still working and really not getting anything out of the training and perhaps not doing the job right when they're doing it in training. So primarily when he calls out about definitely and accidentally training instructors is that there are people out there naturally capable of providing instruction or say training folks to do their job well. But as we know, many SMEs or subject matter experts, which are basically what these folks are, uh, may not have that capacity. But he does call for the need of a train to trainer programs In other words, you got to use experienced people to become trainers. And that makes complete sense because although you may not agree with this because perhaps you're one of those folks that don't have the experience, but you're doing the training. Um, otherwise, we're doing what schools schools kind of do. You know, when you go to schools, you got researchers that in many cases are not practitioners and They all they have done is research. They never stepped into a company or worked in a company or done anything like that. Yet they're writing the papers that everybody else is following, which is kind of weird, right? So he says that you know you become an expert, uh, but you need to be taught how to put it over. You need to be taught how to train people. And and this the key point that he's stressing here is that of course it is plain that such a training course would not undertake to teach a man anything about his trade, the trade itself, but would only show him how to put it over. In other words, how to teach others, how to transfer knowledge in the most effective way. At this point is what I have to share with you in this amazing book. Please check the link and go check it out. The next five or 10 episodes, there are going to be specific topics out of training and development that are going to be referenced in this book as to it breaks everything else down who should be training directors, what the department should look like, what the practices should be, and pretty much resonates with many of all the practices. I mean, there's even mention here of something that can be pretty much interpreted as microlearning, which is the ability to reduce time of instruction uh, to a point that is efficient and broken down in specific uh, tasks. So. Look forward for the next episodes as we're going to break this down 
uh, going to death in this book, uh, bring these uh, challenges up and have us think of what are the lessons going forward. Because today, obviously, we have a mix of things. And if we analyze the history of what we've done, we seem to be very efficient in World War One, out of World War One, the movement of training within industry, which I have a link for a blog article that I wrote, is one of the programs that led to the implementation of the Lean methodology, and also was was a program directed by training directors that became the founding directors of the American. Association of Training Directors, right? So it's the Association of Training Directors, which was the American Society of Training and Development, and you know it today as the Association for Talent Development. There are very specific things here for leadership and training. There's just too much for us to cover in one episode. But uh, we'll have the next uh, part of this book, which is the analysis and classification of trained knowledge which gets down to the needs analysis, which is a big part of what we know as ADI, the analysis, design, development, implementation, and evaluation process. It is all put down here, for lack of a better word, in the book, the instructor, the man, and the job. So it's been a pleasure to have you here in this session. I hope you learned some great things. Make sure you go to our Anchor site and leave a voice message if you have any other information to contribute that precedes this, perhaps, and is directly related, or anything you'd like to say um, over here on the podcast. 